several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow Talk to me all right, it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter, and if you were listening to the show about two months ago, you know we did two back-to-back episodes coming from the Finger Lakes of New York, and the first segment that we did was just an overview of the wine business in the Finger Lakes, and we were given a guided tour by Will Olin and John Engel of Heron Hill Winery, and John is on the line with me now. That was the first subject that we talked about, and we're going to get an up on the second subject in just a second from John, and that's about the fracked gas that the DEC is going to be making a decision on and whether they can store that gas in abandoned salt caves under Seneca Lake. And anyway, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Man, we, an got, honor. we got plenty to talk about. First of all, I want to thank you again for the tour that you gave me back in May. That was just extraordinary. What a great day. That was a really fun day. I still remember it well. That was big fun for uh, uh, Will and I to show you what we do in the Finger Lakes. Sun was shining and the wine was flowing and everything was really copacetic. And the helicopter blades were spinning. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> anyway, that was a great day, but then it was followed by a day of really digging into this horrible, horrible proposal to store fracked gas under Seneca Lake. And, you know, once I got a chance to really look at that story firsthand and to talk to people who are really in the know, I was just a appalled that our government would even consider such a thing. Seems to me with so much barren land across this country of ours that there's got to be a better place that we could do such things if we do them at all. Well, I totally agree. And, and our battle cry at this point, and we've been fighting this tooth and nail for uh, over a year now, and our battle cry is it's just a bad idea. It's as simple as that, it's a bad idea. And every time I see a Tesla car go down the street, I think about just how archaic some of the ways that we fulfill our energy needs are. And to me, we shouldn't be doing this anywhere. And that's just a personal point of view. But the threat that it poses to the wine economy and the tourism economy in the Finger Lakes is just staggering. Well, there's no doubt we need to turn this whole thing around. The gas and oil industry uh, has seen a day and now it's time to move on and find a better way to uh, get ourselves around and to power our heat and our light. And the good news is we have those options. We have the uh, wind towers and we have have the uh, solar panels, and Heron Hill is among the 10 or 15 wineries that have pledged to uh, put in solar power at their wineries, and we are doing that as a, a group effort through our industry to set an example to other wineries around the country and to uh, people in the Finger 
lakes in New York State to let them know that this is an important topic and that we plan on being proactive about it. What I think is amazing about this is the fact that really across the entire country, wineries are really taking the lead in being environmentally conscientious, yet it's the very people who are leading the charge to try to find better ways to produce their products that are falling victim to these old archaic ways to fulfill our energy needs. But it's not even that that bothers me so much. It's just the idea that you would take fracked gas that comes from other states and bring it to one of the most pristine parts of New York State and literally pose a threat to the environment, to the wine industry, to the tourism industry, and then, God forbid, to the people who actually live there. Well, I totally agree. And when Governor Cuomo passed the uh, law not allowing uh, fracking in New York State, we were delighted and, and elated, and we were very proud that he had done that, and we thought that was a great decision. So it came as sort of a double shock to us when he, well, he hasn't approved it or disapproved it yet, but even the fact that they're considering it is a shock and really troubling that they could say, well, you can't mine it, but you can store it. And, you know, some of the things they're planning are just shocking. They expect to have 2 billion cubic feet of methane natural gas being stored on Seneca Lake. They plan on having two open storage ponds, one of 14 acres and the other of 20 acres. And of course, anybody that's reading the uh, newspaper today and yesterday realizes that the storage of toxic waste brings no guarantee with it and anything can happen. And they've now compromised a large river out in Colorado and New Mexico with toxic waste that has been stored there. And I was just reading the article. There's something like 10,000 other mines from the 18 and early 1900s out in Colorado area that have the same uh, possibility that they could be compromised and end up polluting water sources, etc. And that immediately rolls over to my thoughts that if we get one of these torrential downpours that we often get here in the Finger Lakes, we call them gully washers. And we had two and a half inches of rain in 20 minutes Yikes. earlier this year. And that's a lot of water coming down real fast. And if that comes into one of these 15 or 20 acre uh, storage ponds of toxic waste and compromises and that cut loose, it's going to be hell to pay, as they say. And uh, they actually had a million gallon spill of toxic waste in North Dakota. And they're trying to basically hold Crestwood responsible for that. And they are denying responsibility. So they not only come up with some bad ideas, but they don't accept any responsibility for things when they go wrong. So it, it's really a dangerous and scary situation Yeah, uh, that, that some of the things they're planning could come to reality. We're talking to John Engel. He is the president of Heron Hill Winery, which, by the way, was named by Travel and Leisure magazine as one of the 10 most, it's most beautiful, right, John? Most spectacular, most, David. Oh, Thank you. Spectacular is way bigger than beautiful. Get it right. You <laughs> betcha. Let me give it the enthusiasm it deserves. One of the 10 most spectacular wineries in all the world, and that is located right there in the Finger Lakes. In fact, you have three tasting rooms and yep. the winemakers there and the citizens uh -huh. there are really in an uproar about this. And I know that you've invested a great deal of time trying to convince the governor. What's the holdup? I just don't get it because he clearly made his position known when he outlawed fracking gas in the state of New York. But now all of a sudden he seems to be waffling on this. And it would seem to me that an instant no would be the only kind of response that we should be hearing from him. Well, I agree. And in a perfect world, that would be what we would be able to expect. But number one, our governor has a lot of issues on his plate. New York is a big state with a lot of complex issues. So we uh, certainly have to be sympathetic in that respect to him. And when the DEC, which 
I, you know, would anticipate would be our representative and would be in favor of trying to do the right thing and protect our environment when they try and wave this whole thing through and say, no problem, you got to start wondering a little bit about who's scratching who's back or whatever they do in politics to make decisions that seem a little bit illogical. But the bottom line is that they're still kicking it around and they've indicated that they plan on making a decision in late summer or early fall, which obviously is within the next month or two. So the heat is on for us to continue to beat the drum and make our point and try and get as many people aware. We've really found that when people hear the story about what is being proposed here, they are aghast, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) They are shocked with disbelief that this would be a potential reality because this isn't out in the middle of nowhere where nobody is going to be jeopardized. This is in Watkins Glen, which is the home of uh, Watkins Glen Racetrack, where they just had a big NASCAR event, which obviously is very popular. This is in Watkins Glen, where they are planning on having a fish concert in two weeks, which obviously is going to bring tens of thousands of people. Watkins Glen State Park was just voted by USA Today as the third most popular state park in the United States, with over a half a million visitors a year. Wow. This isn't some little cornfield in the middle of nowhere. This is a very important location, and to have flammable gas in a large quantities right down the road, less than five miles away, is just not smart, not a good idea, and needs to be changed and figure something else out, bottom line. We're going to come back and talk more about this, John, but I just want to revisit the subject of those toxic waste ponds. So these are exposed ponds, is that what I understand? Yep, they're just like a holding pond that they have. I'm not an expert on how they deal with the waste and what the process is, but I do know that they plan on having at least two, very possibly more. I've found that there's a lot of half-truths, and they only tell you what they want you to know, so that you never really know the whole story, and they tell their shareholders one thing, and they tell the press another thing, and they tell the public another thing, and by the time you're done, you've got three different stories about the same topic, so it's pretty devious, and the bottom line is they've got a very toxic and flammable, I mean, butane gas. Butane is what you use in your lighter to, to light things, so this is a serious situation. If this stuff was to explode, we could be internationally famous for the wrong reason. And oh, gosh, yeah. All right, we're going to be back with John Engel, president of Heron Hill Winery and really one of the major movers and shakers, really a legend in the Finger Lakes, making some amazing, amazing wines. And I know that firsthand because I drink them almost every night, John. Love them. Great. Okay, all right, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio, where we tell you things your parents never taught you about wine. But don't blame them. Grape Encounters wasn't around in those days. We like to talk about wine. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin wine access system costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works perfectly. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link online at GrapeEncounters.com. 
A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. A lot of people ask me why Manzanita Manor's incredible Portuguese dessert wine is called Two Horse. Well, the reason behind the name is as extraordinary as the wine itself. It's because the owner and winemaker at Manzanita Manor Organics actually uses two beautiful horses to pull the plow on her farmland. When you take your very first sip of the Two Horse Vineyard's irresistible dessert wine, you'll immediately experience the winemaker's unparalleled connection to the land. It's what really makes it so good. You can purchase this exceptional wine online, as well as their purely delicious walnut oil, 100% organic heirloom walnuts, and free trade chocolate-covered walnuts. To learn more about all the Manzanita Manor Organics products, visit mmorganics.com. You can order all their walnut products there, and bottles of two horse, of course. Purchase and shipping subject to state and local regulations. Please see mmorganics.com for more information. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. There is a sea serpent who lives in Seneca Lake. It's a crazy wild sea serpent, and it lives in Seneca Lake. Oh my goodness, it's this slimy sea serpent of Seneca Lake. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and doing today a follow-up on the story that we did in person out at the Finger Lakes in New York about the fracked gas that is destined to be stored under Seneca Lake. And I really and truly believe that we all need to get into the act and urge the governor of New York and anybody else involved in this to reverse their position and tell the company that wants to bring this gas in from other states that they need to take Take it elsewhere. So to give us an update on this issue and tell us what we individually can do is John Engel, the president of Heron Hill Winery, a beautiful winemaking operation in the Finger Lakes region of New York. And John, let's just update people on where the issue stands right now, because I know there was a lot of drama after I left there. Is that still going on or have things settled down just a little bit? And are you in a waiting phase right now? Well, we don't think waiting is part of our strategy. We want to keep the pressure on. We're trying to do it in a uh, civilized, diplomatic way. We have had some of the people that are against this idea get into the civil disobedience and get arrested, you know, some dust-ups like that, and, and that's not what our policy or our strategy is, so we've been trying to discourage that type of behavior. We've been more focused on trying to get the information out there and educate people as to what the situation is. We are in the process of putting in a full-page ad in the Rochester Business Journal. Rochester is the largest city to the Finger Lakes other than Syracuse. The two of them are just north of the Finger Lakes, so we're putting an ad in the Rochester Business Journal this Friday, and we're going to tell the story, and then we're going to be giving the uh, phone contacts. We found that phone is the best way to contact our politicians because they have to record the fact that they did receive these calls and what it was about, etc., etc., so that you are pretty much guaranteed that you will be acknowledged and recognized, and we are going to be giving the uh, contact 
information for Governor Cuomo, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator Chuck Schumer, and U.S. Representative Tom Reed. These are all people that are responsible for us in the Finger Lakes and in our concerns, and we're going to try and get the word out for as many people as possible that are concerned about this situation to contact these people, and we're hoping that it will be a substantial amount and that it will make a substantial impact on these politicians to the point where they realize that this is something that is going to affect the drinking water for over 100,000 people right in the Seneca Lake area and the business climate for uh, over 200 wineries in the Finger Lakes region that generate $4.8 billion in economic impact every year. So, you know, this isn't petty cash or tiddlywinks we're playing with. This is a major impact on our future that we've worked diligently for 50 years or more, which I sometimes joke about us being a 50-year overnight success. We started growing vinifera grapes, which are the European-style grapes in the Finger Lakes in about the 1960s. So it's been about 50 years that we've been growing European-style grapes and making those wines, Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc are our four top varieties. So we have a very short history of top-quality European-style wine. Obviously, we've been making wine here since the 1800s from Concord and Niagara and, and some of the other native varieties, and those are all certainly uh, important products as well. But the point being that our business has exploded, uh, once again, no pun intended. Oh, John. Uh, <laughs> I should, can't help myself. You should be co-hosting this show, I tell you. You're a pun every minute. I've been tracking you. <laughs> <laughs> so most people listen to this story and think only about the potential catastrophe of a gas explosion, but there are ecological consequences that will come regardless of whether there's a catastrophic event. Am I correct in saying that? Because that's how I understand it. Well, yeah, there's so many different directions that this is going that are wrong. For one thing, they've got a uh, 80-year-old bridge, railroad bridge, that's 170 feet high that goes over the Watkins Glen State Park that I yeah. mentioned earlier that a lot of the uh, gas is going to be transported out of. So the possibility of having a train accident, and anybody once again that follows the newspaper realizes that there have been a, an inordinate amount of train accidents in the last two, three, five years with explosions in Quebec and derailments and all kinds of problems. And of course, when a train goes off a 170-foot-high bridge into a glen or a canyon or whatever you want to call it, where there is the park and they have three-quarters of a million visitors in, in that park a year, that's going to create some real bad situations there. And, and the other issue is that these are salt caverns that they're planning on storing the uh, gas in. And not only is that salt, when the gas goes in under pressure, it forces the salt into the rock and it gets into the lake. And Seneca Lake has a higher salinity content from the fact that those caverns are being used to store gas. And they stopped storing gas about 30 years ago because of that. And uh, another important fact is that 7% of gas storage, underground gas storage, is in salt mines. And 100% of the catastrophic accidents reported have occurred in salt mines. So even though it's a very small amount that are being utilized for salt, 100% of the problems that have occurred trace back to salt mines. So it's just, once again, a very bad idea to consider storing uh, natural gas and, and butane and, and methane in these salt caverns. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And what do they say? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You know, <laughs> it just is really insane. The salinity of Seneca Lake going up, will that affect the water that is used for irrigation of grapes? Well, we 
irrigate grapes in the Finger Lakes. That's another thing. Oh, that that's we, right. You have water there. You have, we have water. You, you have it's, that it's thing a miracle, called, and we have good water, and that's another reason we're very motivated to protect it. You know, we read about the problems they're having around the country, and especially in California, and our, our heart goes out to them there, and uh, we know they'll be able to find a way to get through it, but it, it certainly makes life more difficult, and, you know, we're, we're very focused on sustainability here in the Finger Lakes, and, you know, the fact that we don't need to use water to irrigate, that obviously saves hundreds of thousands of gallons of water that would be necessary to irrigate the vineyards. But no, we don't have to deal with that. But as I said, it does affect over 100,000 people who count on Seneca Lake for their daily drinking water. I'll tell you what, if you will agree to send some of that water by pipeline to California, then I will agree to get California to rally on behalf of the Finger Lakes. Well, how about we start with a case? Uh, start with a case. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, you know, the thing is this, Californians are very good at protesting. In fact, I think we invented it out here. So we could certainly help you. Well, we certainly welcome their support and are very blessed to know that they care about us and our problems here. And that's what good human beings do is uh, take care of each other and share the weight of different people's situations they're dealing with, whether it's lack of water or, or water that's being threatened. So thank you for that, David. All right. We're going to be back with John Engel, president of Heron Hill Winery, making some amazing wines. Heron Hill was named by Travel and Leisure magazine as one of the 10 most spectacular wineries in all the world and located right there in the Finger Lakes. All right, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Yes, it is. It's this slimy sea serpent of Seneca Lake. Oh, yeah, it's in New York. You should check it out sometime. Do, 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 do. Wine. If you'd like to hear more no-nonsense talk about wine and all the fun that goes with it, check out winetalkshow.com. At winetalkshow.com, you'll find a massive library of content for fun-loving, unpretentious people who aren't afraid to step outside the lines and challenge conventional wisdom. We'll take you places you've never been before. That's a promise. Expand your wine horizons in unimaginable ways at winetalkshow.com. Nestled between world-class Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo wine countries, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the humble heart of the Central Coast. With access to endless wine country adventures, including wine and olive oil tasting tours, artisan farm experiences, food, wine, and cultural events, historic Atascadero's cozy and oh-so-friendly atmosphere make it the perfect home base for Central Coast tourists. Discover more about the heart of the Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin costs a little bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. 
argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Click the Coravin link at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. Money may not buy happiness, but it will buy you some very good wine. And if that doesn't make you happy, you need to be listening to a self-help show. Not Grape Encounters Radio. Grape Encounters Radio continues. Listen to me, butterfly. There's only so much wine you can And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio and glad to have a few more minutes to spend with our good friend John Engel, one of the most prominent winemakers on the New York wine scene. Since last fall, we've been covering the very tense state of affairs in the Finger Lakes wine region of New York, where a company from outside the state is poised to store an unprecedented amount of liquid natural gas in abandoned salt caves beneath the incredibly beautiful Seneca Lake. This kind of gas storage has an exceedingly bad track record when it comes to safety, and the threat to both the wine industry and residents of the area is very real to those who are determined to keep the region safe. There's a lot that's been going on behind the scenes, and for the moment, it appears that no one has been able to convince Governor Cuomo to block the storage of gas under the lake, despite the fact that he put his foot down where gas fracking in New York is concerned. It's hard to imagine but true all the same. We'll stick with this story to the bitter end and encourage all of you to write the governor and tell him what folks in the rest of the country think about all this. In the meantime, life goes on and grape harvest is already underway in much of the country. So we'll leave the fracked gas story to talk about more pleasant things. Here on the West Coast, some grapes are already being picked. So, John, have you guys started harvesting any grapes yet? Uh, not quite yet. It'll probably be another week or two before they start with the early varieties. We're seeing a lot of the red varieties starting to go into verasion, which means they're starting to turn from green to red. And I think it'll probably be a, a little bit later harvest. It's been a slow start this year after the really difficult winter we had last year. So it, things got off to a week or two slow start, and it's been almost a constant north wind all summer. I live right here on Canandaigua Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes. We're about two lakes over from Seneca Lake. Right. But you can really see which direction the wind's coming from just by looking at which way the waves are going on the lake. And I like to uh, sort of analyze the year as either a Riesling year or a Pinot Noir year. And when we have those dry, hot years like we had several years ago in 2010 and a couple of years before that, we had hot, dry summers and we made some fantastic Pinot Noirs and it was very exciting. But when you have a year like this where you have sort of a late start and we have had a lot of cool weather. We had rain literally every day for two months. I probably shouldn't be saying this to people in California. I know it'll break their heart, but we had rain every day, and that once again leads to a, a cool, damp climate. We're fighting some uh, downy mildew in the vineyards. We've had to spray more than normal, but this is going to be a Riesling year unless something really changes fast, which I would be surprised. But we're all about Riesling. That's our flagship wine here. We make probably six or eight different types of Riesling, dry, semi-dry, semi-sweet, late harvest, ice wine, reserve, 
et cetera, et cetera. So anytime we have a Riesling year, that's a boon to us and our business, and we're excited about it. And we're glad to have a crop. Last year, we didn't have much of a crop, especially of the Reds, because of the terrible winter we had two winters ago. And who could have ever imagined that we would have gotten it again last winter? It was yeah. single digits for weeks and weeks, even months. So the vines held out basically because they didn't have much of a crop, so they weren't taxed going into this winter. So they, they got through the winter better, and uh, we're going to have a moderate crop, and hopefully it'll be a, a high-quality crop this year. It's amazing how things can differ from one coast to the other. We already are bringing grapes in, and harvest has already begun. And I, I live on a vineyard and was looking at the Zinfandel grapes this morning. I mean, they're ready to go. Yeah, this is really unprecedented, I think, in terms of how early the harvest is going to be out here. So we're bone dry here and ready to pick, and you're sopping wet there, and it's going to be a late season for you. <laughs> and nobody can control it. All you can do is try and deal with it. You, you play the cards you're dealt. Yeah, exactly. Well, for listeners, if you have the opportunity to try the wines from the Finger Lakes, you're going to be shocked. I wasn't shocked at how delicious the Rieslings were because I've had them here and there along the way, and they're really world-class. They're as good as anything that's coming out of Pacific Northwest or out of Germany. They're just world-class wines, and you got to taste it to believe it. But the big surprise to me was the red wines, varietals like Cabernet Franc, which you make just an absolutely delicious Cab Franc, very old world style, I would say, lower in alcohol than what we make out here in California, and, you know, very elegant and, I would say, a more delicate wine than what you're used to if you're drinking it from other parts of the world. Absolutely, and, you know, that's what we do with our climate here. We're really the most German-style climate in the United States, so we're tailor-made for making Rieslings and, and are tailor-made for making lighter-style wines that are closer to 12.5 alcohol than 14 or 15 that you get with the uh, higher ripeness, and higher ripeness basically ends up in uh, higher alcohol. Yeah, I got that. And, and by the way, I was in Germany recently, and they are now saying that they've got the most upstate New York type climate. So, <laughs> thank you for that. I, I, th- I like that one. <laughs> I think they see you as a threat, John. <laughs> well, we're not trying to threaten anybody. We just like to share and get along and see everybody happy. And uh, that's what wine usually does for people. Well, you don't want to threaten the Germans because you saw what their reaction to the little uproar in Greece was. That's you know, right. you got to stay on their good side. They're very competitive, that's for sure. Okay, John Ingle, president of Heron Hill. And gosh, if you're planning a trip, you know, this year, this fall, or next year, put Finger Lakes on your bucket list because the Finger Lakes really and truly is a beautiful place to visit, wonderful places to stay, amazing wines. You could stay there for a month and not even come close to getting through all the wineries there. There's hundreds of wineries, amazing varietals that you don't taste in other parts of the country, and they do a great job with many of the varieties that you are familiar with. So check it out, and be sure to stop by the world's most spectacular, I should say one of the 10 most spectacular wineries in all the world, and that would be Heron Hill. Thank you, David. No charge for that commercial, John. I appreciate it. We appreciate you, and we're going to do our best out here in California to turn people on to the Finger Lakes wine because it's just fun to drink something different, and your wines are just beautifully different, and we just appreciate the great work, the great work that you're doing out there. 
Thanks again. I appreciate that, too. And uh, we're working hard to do our best with Mother Nature's help. You've got the wine bloggers out there now, don't you? Yep. Uh, they're coming in on Friday, so we're excited about that. So uh, another great opportunity to spread the word. Do you anticipate talking to the bloggers about the Seneca Lake issue? I hope so. If we get a chance, you know, it won't be the main topic, obviously, but if we get a chance to insert that into the dialogue, it certainly is something that is uh, important to us and really important to the Finger Lakes brand. Our brand is threatened, you know, just like, you know, the the California brand is threatened to a certain degree by the changing uh, of the climate out there, you know, so... Everybody has to pull together and find out what we can do to stay ahead of this whole thing. Yeah, you got it. Well, the one good thing about the problems out here in California is I have more time in my day because we're only allowed to take a 30-second shower. (laughs) Okay, Okay, well, I guess it was Ben Franklin that used to have the air bath every day, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay. All right, John Ingalls, what a privilege to talk to you. We love talking to you, love having you on the show, love your wines, and... I wish you the best of luck, and we'll support you every way we can out here in California. Well, that's awesome, David, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Well, it's always a pleasure when John Engel is in the house, even if it's over the phone. Coming up next, I'm going to introduce you to a winemaker who, at just 29 years old, is making news around the world as he repeatedly is recognized as one of the hottest young winemakers on the planet. His name is Gavin Channon, and he has received amazing praise from the likes of Forbes magazine, Wine Enthusiast, Wine and Spirits, and much more. While wine may get better with age, there are a number of young winemakers who are giving their predecessors a real run for their money. Meet wine savant Gavin Channon when Grape Encounters returns after this. While most people are more likely to drink white wine during these hot sunny days, there's now reason to believe that red wine is a sun worshiper's best friend. Red wine is red because the juice of the grapes is allowed to intermingle with the skins for a prolonged period of time. The tannins and their flavonoid cousins, released as part of the winemaking process, are a big part of the deep color, flavor, and tanginess of red wines. These components are already known to be heart-friendly, but now there's news that these same components may fight sunburn and skin cancer. Scientists in Barcelona, Spain, took a close look at what happens to human skin when it's met by damaged UV rays from the sun. These Spanish scholars discovered that flavonoids in grapes and wine literally stop the chemical reaction that causes cells to mutate, thereby preventing skin damage from sunburn and, by extension, skin cancer. Already it's reported that top cosmetic companies are busily concocting sun creams and pills that copy this natural process. Someday you may be able to get what amounts to a bottle of wine in a tube or a caplet that will prevent your epidermis from suffering solar ruin, enabling you to soak up the sun without turning into a raisin. You're having a grape encounter with David Wilson. What a way to spend the day. If you have a thirst for wine knowledge, be it trivia or the latest trends, there's a website that's overflowing with content that we've created just for you. It's GrapeEncounters.com, where you'll find literally hundreds upon hundreds of stories and interviews covering almost every topic imaginable. From the world's most colorful and renowned winemakers to unforgettable wine adventures, there's something for every wine lover at GrapeEncounters.com. Go ahead, log on, uncork, Pour, swirl, and sip. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it. 
with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin wine access system costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works. Perfectly. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link online at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from ziplining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. I've got chocolate, Chardonnay, and Billy Holiday. At just 29 years old, my next guest, Gavin Channon, brings a depth of experience to his winemaking that even veterans would envy. Gavin was raised in Southern California, where he attended UCLA to study fine arts. During this time, he not only chose wine as his preferred beverage, but he also took an active interest in learning to make it. While at UCLA, Channon took the fall quarter off each year to work harvest in California. By the time he was 21, he had already worked three harvests with highly acclaimed veterans of the California wine scene. He also worked harvests in South Africa and New Zealand, traveled extensively in Burgundy and Italy, and in 2007 launched his own label, Channon Wine Company. Gavin was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2011, a winemaker to watch by the San Francisco Chronicle in 2012, one of Food and Wine's Winemakers of the Year in 2012, and was featured in Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 Under 40 Tastemakers in the Wine Industry for 2013. And he now joins us on Grape Encounters Radio. Gavin, I can't believe your resume. You're 29 years old, and you've done more and had more honors, I think, than most winemakers who are 60 or 70. (laughs) Astounding. Did you ever expect this? Thank you for having me, first off. You know, I'm not quite sure what to say about the accolades. I started making a very unpopular style of wine for California at the time, so I think uh, it's kind of one of those accidental things where if you create wine that you're passionate about that has uh, a real meaning to it, you'll find a market and you'll find people that love it. So when you say it was an unpopular kind of wine, what were you making and why was it unpopular? Well, my first harvest was in 2004, and that was definitely during the height of big, bombastic, oaky, heavily 
heavily alcoholic, watered-down wines. Not that there's not a time and place for that style. I think it's totally legitimate. I've been misquoted saying the opposite in the past, but it's not the style of wine that really drove me to loving wine. I, I love kind of more classic style wines that go well with food, that can age for 20 or 30 years. So the, the critical kind of mass at the time when I started making wine was definitely strongly shifted towards the riper style. So I came back and people told me I was totally insane. I, I traveled in 2007. I worked in South Africa, New Zealand, traveled through Burgundy and came back really wanting to take advantage of old wines that we had in Santa Barbara, which were actually, for the most part, available to purchase because a lot of people were going after kind of young, hot vineyards that had been planted five or ten years earlier. Yeah. So I, I snuck in and was able to, to utilize a lot of the old vines to make some really well-balanced wines that people ended up liking. So it all worked out. But isn't there a, a revolt right now against those high-alcohol wines by a larger segment of the wine-drinking population? There seems to be a trend away from those very big wines, or do I just have my head in the clouds? No, I think there's definitely a, a trend moving away from those wines. That said, I don't think those wines are going anywhere, nor should they. But, you know, 10 years ago, someone would ask me to pour them uh, a buttery Chardonnay. Now people come up and say, pour me a Chardonnay that's not buttery. So styles have shifted as palates get more and more complex. People are open to drinking a lot of different things. You have so many voices in wine, which is fantastic. It's fun to be a part of. So at 29 years old, you are not alone in being, you know, one of the many young winemakers that are out there. And we hear a lot about young winemakers that are taking the wine industry in a different direction, in addition to what we're already doing. But I also think that there are an awful lot of young wine drinkers out there. Do you feel that you're making wine for a new generation of wine drinkers? Or what exactly is happening? Because certainly the young winemakers are not drinking what their parents were drinking. I mean, that's an interesting question. I'm definitely a young winemaker, but this will be my 15th harvest this year. So I've been around the block a couple times. I feel a lot older than I actually am from too many days working harvest. But as far as drinkers go, we have a really diverse audience for Ludum. We sell wine in California, New York, London, Japan, young people, old people. And I think that's one of the amazing things about making a balanced wine. And one thing that surprised me is that people who enjoy bigger styles of Pinot don't dislike our wine because our wine still has great texture and great richness to it. It's just not quite as heavy. It's not quite as sweet. So I've been really surprised by how diverse of an audience can appreciate the wines. And if you would have asked me that when we started the company, I would have been a lot more stubborn. I think I would have said, we're making a specific style of wine for a specific type of drinker. But the truth is, there's there's so many different things going on in the wines that any number of palates, I think, can find something that they really find compelling. You know, what's really funny is when you walk into our wine shop, the sign over our Pinot section says, Pinot for Pinot haters. And the reason that I did that was because I really believe that in the post-sideways years, we saw this immense production of Pinot start happening, and we ended up with a lot of really terrible Pinot out there. Mm -hmm. And people who were not dedicated to doing the work that's necessary to making a good Pinot were making Pinots, and people saw the word Pinot and just bought it. But I think the percentage of good Pinots out there compared to how many are made is pretty small, actually. And in the end, the effect of sideways was to cause a better quality Merlot and a lot of bad Pinot. Can you react to that? Yeah, I I agree with that, unfortunately. Um, I think the way that the U.S. wine market works is if you have a couple wines that hit a certain chord and spread like wildfire, and then from a business perspective, other people want to make those wines because they're so popular. So you saw that 
with Merlot, everyone planted Merlot, and really what killed Merlot was so much of it being low quality and kind of people jumping on the bandwagon. I think you saw the same thing with the riper style of wines when those first came out. They were made by small producers that were making pretty unique styles of wine. And I think we'll see a similar thing with any wine trend. And it's up to the customer, and really the customer has so many tools now with the internet to tell me voices are out there. It's up to them to decide who kind of floats their boat from a reviewer standpoint, what producers they like, and then run at those. Because even though there's a lot of noise out there, the number of producers making great wine every year increases. So there's a lot of great wine out there. We're talking to Gavin Channon. He was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2011, a winemaker to watch by the San Francisco Chronicle in 2012, one of Food and Wine's Winemaker of the Year in 2012, and was featured in Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 Under 40 Tastemakers in the Wine Industry for 2013. Just amazing. Uh, talk to me about Harvest this year. It's been a weird year, has it not? And especially with some really unexpected big rains, is 2015 going to be a banner year, or is it too early to tell? I'm leaning towards a banner year. I'm leaning toward a similar vintage to 2001, which is one of my favorites. And I work with Ludum. We, uh, my partner in Ludum, Bill Price, is based out of Sonoma. And we work with his vineyards there. So we work with Durrell and Gaps Crown, and then we work all over the Santa Rita Hills and Santa Maria down south. So it's kind of a collaboration. So I get to see a lot of different vineyards. But what we're seeing is a really early harvest, which is not a product of a hot growing season. It's a product of a warm winter and early bud break. So even though the the harvest is historically early, maybe one of the earliest ever, besides from last year. Okay, so if people want to know more about your wines, we can send them, I think, to two places, right? You have the uh, Channon Wines under your name and then Ludum, right? Yeah, so Channon I started in 07. Ludum I started with Ill in 2011. Two slightly different takes on Pinot Noir from California. And you can find us online at ludumwines.com or at shannonwine.com. Just to make it really clear, Ludum is L-U-T-U-M and Shannon is C-H-A-N-I-N. And Gavin, what a pleasure to have you on. Wow, I feel like I'm in the presence of royalty. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, David. It's an honor. Uh, you're very welcome. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. We will be back with you next week, same time, same channel. Until then, go for the good stuff. There's way too much good wine at good prices for you not to do that. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.